So they're really inefficient if we're looking at on the reproductive side. But when we consider those cells that repetitively have that low birth weight phenotype, they are a source of one of the largest source of low birth weight pigs, right? So they have all the same components, but, but as a litter trait. I think it's really important when we're looking at the efficiency of good field development, it also relates back to birth weight and having those cells that with the low birth weight phenotypes in the herd. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about AB Vista, an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. That's N-A-M at abvista.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Greiner, and today I have Jenny Patterson from the University of Alberta. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you. I'm excited to talk about uh, guilt development today. As we get talking, uh, Jennifer, would you mind giving our audience just a little bit more background about who you are and what you're currently doing? Yes, absolutely. So a little bit of background about myself. I guess I was born and raised here in Edmonton and had all the pets, the dogs and horses. And I think that's what led me to a degree at in agriculture at the University of Alberta. And I had some great mentors there. I had a summer job with Dr. Frank Ahern and then he convinced me to do a graduate study with Dr. George Foxcroft. So I think that really set the course of my career. Uh, right now, I currently work at the university, as you said, and I'm part of a group called Livestock Gentech. At Livestock Gentech, we work closely with industry to de develop different tools and technologies, um, both in the beef and the swine sectors. And as the title suggests, it's largely related to genomics and genetics research. So my role at the university is a little bit different. I have the honor and pleasure of working with several different industry groups, um, and we work together in a variety of different capacities. I guess broadly, our goal is to realize that uh, true genetic potential of the females and males available to us. So if we look at the average across the industry, this is where um, genetic potential may be, so narrowing that gap a little bit. 
We work together um, largely on guilt development, so implementing good guilt management programs so, uh, to improve cell lifetime productivity. We work with data. There's piles and piles of data available in those cell database programs. Um, so what we do is troubleshoot, no problems. We can identify areas of opportunity, and also we track and monitor performance and how we're doing. And the last area is research. Um, and what we do here is we really advocate for the practice of the science into practice and research into reality. So really listening to the needs of the producers and we work with and industry to develop research programs or questions that are really industry commercially applicable. Sounds really interesting. And I think that's a very good topic to have today. We're particularly talking about that a lot in terms of how many pigs a sow should have and what does that look like in terms of her lifetime productivity. And so I think let's start maybe with just that definition of SLP. It's It's been around for a long time, um, sow lifetime productivity, but what are some components that you think about when, when we start discussing sow lifetime productivity? Yeah, great question. I think sow lifetime productivity is a combination of a couple of different factors. Um, of course, um, gilts, I think, are the foundation of good development. So they really drive cell lifetime productivity. Um, but cell lifetime productivity also relates to productivity, so the number of pigs she produces in her lifetime, longevity, so how long she stays in the herd, and overall efficiency to reach that as well. So in terms of your non-productive days and your efficiency in achieving that goal of pigs produced during that, that lifetime. So, yeah. and I think there are a number of key factors to achieve this. Um, again, I think it really comes back to good guilt management. Um, we feel that there are really four key components that if we set that guilt upright, will really drive improves our lifetime productivity. Um, I think those are being age at puberty, weight, estrus, and age at service. Um, age at puberty really drives us getting those, those other three components. So we have to start guilt's um, puberty stimulation early enough so we're able to hit those targets. Um, early puberty has been associated with increased fertility over a lifetime, increased probability of achieving those first, second, and third litters, and fewer non-productive days. Weight at service, we really recommend gilts being bred probably between about 135 to 160 kilograms. And this is really a function of retention. So gilts that are heavier at service will be culled sooner, they'll be less productive, they'll be heavier throughout their productive life, so they'll cost more to feed, and just really less efficient sows. Um, estrus at service, that's another really important one. Um, We've recently done a study that we looked at breeding gilts at first esters or second or third esters. So those gilts bred at their first recorded esters have fewer pigs born on their first litter. They have um, lower bearing rates, lower pigs born over three parodies, and lower retention rates. And age at service is really intrinsically related to age at puberty, um, but it's important. Those are the low efficiency cells as well low retention, low pigs weaned over their productive lifetime, and um, also increase in non-productivity. So that's efficiency component of cell lifetime productivity. So those are the four key components we really look at. 
I think those are really good ones to start with. Um, you know, we hear a lot anymore of, of our guilts are growing faster and faster today because of, of what we're trying to accomplish on the terminal side. Are you seeing anything where there is a downside to this? So the way I'm asking this is really, um, we hear some conversation about maybe we should be slowing our guilts down, that maybe the days to S or days to puberty is getting too short and that might be influencing long longevity. Are you seeing this or, or do you think we're still looking mainly at, at getting them to puberty as quick as possible? I think some of the challenges is, is because they're faster growing, they're going to be heavier when they come into heat and heavier at service. Um, and because of that, if we wait to second estrus on a gilt that's growing really fast and she's later or maturing, she's going to be well over those weight ranges that we recommend. So that's why we would really recommend backing it up, starting puberty stimulation at about 170 days of age. So even the fastest growing gilts will hopefully, under a good stimulation program, will be in heat by about 200 days of age and hopefully not be exceeding those, those targets between about 135 to 160 kilograms. And the challenge is, I know there's a lot of great nutritionists and we're all looking at different ways to try to slow that growth down, but I know it's also a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's good information. The other thing I've heard recently too are, are individuals that um, are maybe struggling with the actual boar exposure events around the gilt development. So you, you mentioned introducing the boars at about 170 days of age. What do you visualize in terms of good boar exposure within that gilt developer? Well, I think one of the most under-recognized -rec component of the gilt development unit is the boar. Right? Um, we need to make sure we have a good boar replacement program. So lots of boars come up. Sometimes you go into the barn and there's one or two boars out there, right? So I think that's one of the um, one of the key components. And in the farm, sometimes the boars that are used are the, the oldest, the ones they're easiest to move around, and maybe not the best boars for heat checking. Um, we have to remember the boar effect is a combination of um, different, uh, the olfactory, the tactile, visual, and the auditory cues. Um, and so maximal bore effect is shown with direct contact. So I think it's really important to have direct contact between the bores and the gilts for maximal pu puberty stimulation. It's the transfer of that pheromones between the bore and the gilts. So those bores should be chomping and foaming when they're being used. So direct contact is more efficient. We found that taking the bores to the gilt pen is also more efficient. Um, Often, uh, we advocate for the use of a bear system, so a bore exposure area, um, because it really combines some of those key components that we're looking for. But we also recognize that might not be applicable on all farms. So uh, whether you have a bear system or taking the bore to the gilt pens, really make sure that you have good direct contact, good bores with high libido. And also another component is giving the staff the tools to do a good job as well. And records. I think keeping the records and how everything's going on is also very important. So what kind of records would you use in the GDU that you think are, are valuable for our style lifetime productivity? I think there are some key components. Uh, we would like, if I was to say my wish list of what we'd like to look at, um, start a puberty stimulation. We need to know the day of puberty, our first detected heat, and we also would like to um, record a weight, um, and also we'd like to know weight at service and estrus at service. 
And I think those are really key points because there's a lot of data and a lot of things we can derive from those key points to answer some really important questions of how effective our programs are working. So I have a question for you. You mentioned weight and weight is always a challenge, particularly in our current facilities. We don't have scales or, or maybe the labor necessarily to, to do that. And the camera technology isn't quite there yet for, for most of us here, at least in the United States to use. And interestingly enough, I opened up my desk drawer the other day and I found the Alberta tapes that we used to use from flank, um, flank to flank, right? To give us a, a weight estimate. Is that something we should still be using or is there another way that you might recommend that our producers get those weights? I think the gold standard would be um, at this point a scale weight. Um, we developed that weight tape as an estimate. Um, and I know there are several other different versions of that, that as well. So I think it's a good estimate. We've never made that tape to say a guilt is 140 versus 150 kilograms. We made that tape as an estimate that she should be bred at a, an excess dress. So um, I think that lack of a scale and lack of the technology, because I think that's really exciting to automatically um, have that weight, um, the tapes are a good estimate. And, and it's, yeah, it's far better than, than not having anything, yeah. Right, yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think those records are invaluable, just because even from a nutritionist perspective, if someone comes in and says we have a guilt developer issue, well, I kind of need to know where are we at by age and weight and, you know, is it a nutrition issue we need to adjust or is it production and ventilation? You know, what, what's the challenge there? So absolutely. And I, I would agree. And I think also other things we can look at is um, the response to purity stimulation. So we'd look at the response dynamics of how guilt are coming into heat because we would expect a certain percentage in by like say 21 days. Um, also things we can look at is the interestus interval. So between the first estrus and second estrus, it should be approximately 21 days. And if it's not, we can go back and troubleshoot to see uh, what's going on there as well. So those are a couple of the key components I think to look at. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, I think we really miss sometimes just how we work that bore in with the gilts and and how we monitor the behaviors around that and forget, right, the basic components of, of good bore exposure. Yeah, so. and I think something else we, we have to recognize is just like you said, the behavior side of things, mm -hmm. um, because it actually, the bore is, the guilt is the one that solicits the bore, right? So we have to let that natural behaviors occur. And that's why I think direct um, contact is really important because uh, when we're trying to, uh, and train the, the staff that's going in, recognizing these components and these behaviors and these interactions is really important, as you just said, to get the best um, program working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here. Um, you have uh, recently a National Pork Board study that talked about the interactions between birth weight and, and the phenotype. And I'd like for you to give our audience maybe a little bit of background about why you set that trial up and then talk through what you found. Okay. Well, we wanted to look at this, um, this study and it really is um, what we found or what we know is that there's two sources of low birth weight pigs. And the first one is within litter variation. So within any litter, you might have those low birth weight pigs, right? 
versus the between litter, which is more of a litter trait. So we have sows that repeatedly over their lifetime have entire litters of low birth weight pigs. So it's an entirely different problem. Um, we know, and I guess what we found in our study as well, those low birth weight pigs have lower retentions. Um, if you look at the probability of loss and mortality within the first four days, it's largely driven by those low birth weight pigs. Um, they have slower growths, so, and um, they take longer to reach puberty. So they're really inefficient if we're looking at um, on the reproductive side. But when you consider those cells that repetitively have that low birth weight phenotype, they are a source of one of the largest source of low birth weight pigs, right? So they have all the same components, but, but as a litter trait. So um, I think it's really important when we're looking at the efficiency of good field development also relates back to birth weight and having those cells that with the low birth weight phenotypes in the herd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, have we figured out why those sows are producing the low birth weights? Do we believe that's truly just genetic or is this, I always think of nature um, versus nurture and, and the environment in which that female was raised either as a guilt or even as she was an embryo um, prior, was she exposed to something that's that's naturally caused this? And so have you done any of, of those steps back or we still just kind of focused on, no, we, we have this population within the herd that, that always produces low birth weight pigs? Well, we feel that it's the interaction between the genotype and the phenotype. So it's the interaction of the component traits of um, ovulation rates, embryo survival. So those factors affect litter size and the other factors affect litter quality, such as uterine capacity and um, placenta function. So through the, those interactions, that's where we get the low birth weight phenotype from. So some of those traits are hard to select for as, as well, right? And I think the increase in um, the focus on, uh, focus on increasing in litter size has contributed to this problem. However, on the opposite side of things, um, different genetic companies are not selecting, they're selecting a little bit differently. So they're selecting for birth weight and and litter sizes too. So I think the problem will, um, won't be as prevalent as it may have been before. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've heard that too recently. We're focusing a little bit more on survivability rather than just total born. Um, so that that is good news. Um, do you know like what, I'm just curious what percent of the herd might be considered a low uh, birth weight type of sow? So if we have a hundred sows, is there roughly a percent of, of that population that we might see, or is it pretty yeah. variable? It's actually fairly low. It's about 10 to 15% of the sow, sow population, but they produce about 40% of the low birth weight pigs. So it's very disproportionate. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that's an important component when we're looking to try to manage some of these low birth weight sows as well, because it is a relatively small number of sows. Mm -hmm. How about the distribution? So if we have two gilts that that pharaoh and we measure birth weights, do we see that these are going to be low birth weight producing animals from the time they have their first pharaohing, or is this something where that spread occurs as they have more pharaohing events? It would be most pre prevalent in the older parity sows, so say parity four above, because this is when they really have the increases in ovulation rates. So 
Uh, that's where we have the compromised placenta development and limits in uterine capacity. So it is largely present or most visible in those higher parity cells, but we've also looked at it at um, parity one, and you can still you can still see that as well. So we would recommend or start to consider if a sow has a low birth weight litter at parity one and at parity two, she would be considered a management opportunity for a management type call because she will repeat that in her subsequent parodies and it's also a transgenerational trait. So she may pass that on to her progeny as we just discussed as well. That's really interesting. That's something to, to take into account. It's I know it's another record for our farmers to to track in terms of taking another weight, but it could be a very valuable one if we start thinking about that difference in mortality and, and livability. So that's actually very intriguing. Um, the last thing I wanted to visit with you about, because you and I talk a lot about research over the years, and you know, what kind of uh, research philosophy do you currently have in your program? Um, I think it's something that, uh, well, George Foxcroft, who is, who is my mentor, um, he really advocated the, the thought of science into practice and research into reality. So we can do the best experiments on the research farms with 100 gilts, but does it actually work on in the farms, right? So I think that's a really important component that um, we really address. Listen to the concerns of and opportunities of the people we work with. And I think um, what I really enjoy about the research is the people you meet as well. Um, and I think the, the farm managers and everybody, they really know what's going on. So when we develop these on-farm commercial type trials, it's so important to have a good team to make them successful as well, right? Because like we all have our own areas of expertise, but when, we're, when we overlap, I think working together with everybody involved really makes a good successful commercial trial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're so valuable, those commercial trials, right? Because we, as you mentioned, we need, one, we need them to be in a practical setting where we are going to have human error and, and human involvement in, in everything we do. And, and two, just the sheer numbers. Right? When we're talking about productivity, what's what's kind of the ideal number for you, Jennifer, as far as, as, far as number of gilts in an experiment? Is it pretty high? Yeah, well, on the commercial side of things, we usually do it over time as well, right? So mm -hmm. I guess at least a couple thousand, I guess, I don't know the, the proper number, but if we do it over a long term period of time, like over a year, we have different seasons and all those things that we can take into account because there'll be a lot of seasonal effects and time effects in any of these projects. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I had once heard the number to, to detect a half a pig difference in total born, we needed at least 500 animals per treatment. And so I always think about that because we're not talking half pigs, even in, in some of these numbers, we're sometimes talking quarters and tenths and fifteenths. And so, um, you know, I think that thousand is, is probably fairly fair for what we're trying to accomplish. And, and so I agree, I think that that's very key from a commercial perspective and in, in setting up those research programs to, to connect with the farm staff, because obviously they want the farm to succeed and and they want to be invested too. So yeah, and I also think it's important when um, we have the results of these trials. Like we can write a good paper and we can give some good presentations, but getting it back to the people that are actually doing the work, I think it's really important to provide support 
um, to them to achieve those goals. For example, in guilt development, work closely with them and provide those tools and provide the different records and really provide that support so we can achieve the goals and achieve the outcomes of those research projects we work so hard to to to, to do absolutely absolutely well as we kind of wrap up our our visit here uh, what would be a couple of key points that you would like to um, give to our audience based on our conversation today yeah i guess the first thing um I guess it's starting kind of ending where I started is good guild management. It really is the foundation of good production. Um, and uh, and I guess, again, quoting George, he's such an influential part of my life, but he always used to say that um, guild development isn't low-hanging fruit, right? We know it's difficult. We know it's hard to do. But to achieve your goal, the input and the effort to do it is really important. Um, I would really encourage people to good data record accurate data. I think that's really critical. And then use that data to answer your questions and track track success. No, I like those those key points. And I, I think you you've introduced a few new concepts too into the value of those records and you know what they might help tell us, particularly if you have even a multiplication farm and your commercial farm, if we start tracking birth weights and so forth, we might be able to change overall system mortality three years. It might be a slow process, right? But we can do those things. So I think that's a very important key point that you bring out in your conversation. Mm -hmm. It is time to our famous three. Since 1971, Zinpro has focused on improving the health and well-being of animals. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Um, so as we wrap up, a couple of things we like to ask our speakers. It's, it's common to ask everybody the same questions. So the first question we like to ask is, do you have a, a recommended swine resource for the for the group? Um, I guess aside from the typical uh, PubMed searches and different books, I always resort back to the people I work with because I think I'm very lucky and fortunate to work with a variety of veterinarians and nutritionists and all the farm managers. So uh, I learned so much from speaking to the, the people that I work with. And, a good point. Very good. Um, the other question, if we can think of somebody that you define as successful, what would be a key trait that they would have possessed that that you think led them to be successful? Um, I think I think challenging what is normally done, right? Asking the questions and maybe there's a different way to do things or an uh, opportunity to improve things. So questioning things um, and working towards a goal of putting some of those ideas and challenges into practice. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Well, again, for our audience, this is Jennifer Patterson from the University of Alberta. Jennifer, we wanna thank you for your time today and your expertise. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, it's been a pleasure. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. 
Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.